You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. So today we have an amazing revolutionary rapper, Shang Yu, from Taiwan, who's going to tell us about the history of the island in the 20th century. So how are you doing? I'm doing good. Not, not, not too revolutionary. I'm just, I'm just a humble student of Marxism-Leninism. But I loved your song about Korea. Like that was how I um, quote-unquote met you. Glad you liked it. Yeah. Um, by the way, if you haven't, check out our previous interview where we talk about his trip to uh, the unoccupied Korea <laughs> um, on YouTube. So we'll include a link. So how did you get interested and connected with Taiwan? I, I guess your family's from there, right? Yes, well, my mother's side of the family is my father's side, um, just by um, circumstance, because he's part of the Chinese diaspora in Korea. So, like, his family wasn't, like, part of the wave of uh, mainlanders who ended up in Taiwan following the Civil War. And needless to say, he wasn't one of those, um, he, he, he's not, like, indigenous Taiwanese, nor was he, like, one of those early, earlier Han migrants from the Qing Dynasty up to, like, um, 1895. So, um, what happened was in South Korea... They didn't recognize the children of Chinese migrant workers or just Chinese people in general as their citizens, even wow. if they were born in Korea. And the only Chinese government they recognized at the time was um, the one in Taipei. And the, the KMT, the, um, the Chiang Kai-shek regime, was also trying to do outreach to overseas Chinese. So people like my dad just became um, so-called um, Republic of China citizens. So, um, and since the so-called Republic of China regime only has control over... Um, Taiwan, Penghu, Jimin, and Mazu. He, by circumstance, became a fake Taiwanese and of sorts. And the school he attended was set up basically um, by the Chinese community there. And um, it worked. they worked closely with the Ministry of Education in um, Taiwan. So the education he received in Korea was pretty similar to the one that my mom received in Taiwan. Do they speak Mandarin in Taiwan? Mandarin is the most commonly language spoken, but um, because most of the people in Taiwan are descendants of early migrants from southern Fujian province, they speak like Minan, the Minan language or, the, or, or what people call Hokkien. Yeah, actually in India, there are a lot of people from the Hakka area, I guess. Well, Hakka is actually another, Hakka is different, but there's also um, Hakka people in, in Taiwan. So um, before the arrival of the new mainlanders, after um, around the time of the Chinese Civil War, like the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War, the biggest group of Han Chinese were the descendants of the people from southern Fujian. They speak Hokkien, but then there's also Hakka people. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting them confused. I'm sorry. The current leader of um, Taiwan, um, Tsai Ing-wen, is Hakka, actually. Okay. Uh, um, and did you go to school in the U.S. or in uh, China, Taiwan? In the U.S., but um, when I was a child, I spent most of my um, summers, and before I started school, I would spend many months at a time ah. in Taiwan, and um, I lived there for a few years. That's how you learned the language? Well, yes, but also because I speak it at home. Ah, okay. So a lot of people don't understand the relationship between Taiwan, the mainland, and everything. So can we start talking about it from maybe i guess the japanese occupation or do you want to start talking about it from the king dynasty? it's up to you well um basically in essence i think there is a great misunderstanding in, among the west whether you're, you're um pro-china or anti-china and i don't know if you'd agree with this but um, most people's understanding of taiwan just begins and ends in 1949 when chiang kai-shek um, retreated to taiwan with his soldiers I think something like that. Yes. Um, something like that. Yes. So, uh, yeah. We, so we want to get a more historical perspective of it. So we want to rewind it a few centuries or, right? Yeah. So essentially, um, well, I have a podcast series on Carl Zaz's um, Silk and Steel podcast because um, this, if we wanted to go into this, we can go for hours. But essentially, Taiwan was like a trading post at one point. And then um, what is currently like Southern Taiwan, um, Tainan was kind of a base of operations for the um, the Dutch East Indies company. And because um, they needed cheap labor, they started importing a lot of people from um, the Chinese mainland. So that's where you get the first beginning wave of Han migration. And then um, one thing led to another. Um, the um, Ming loyalist Kok Xinga, or um, Zheng Chenggong, however you want to call him, ended up going to Taiwan and kicking out the Dutch 
and establishing his um, kind of Ming Dynasty outpost because the Ming was being defeated and he was a Ming loyalist. So he wanted to um, counter the Qing and uh, restore the Ming. So there's kind of, um, you can kind of see a parallel between um, Chiang Kai-shek's um, KMT going to Taiwan and um, the, the Communist Party of China being victorious on the mainland. There's a slight parallel there. So um, that happened. And then the Qing eventually, like later on, went and um, defeated the remnants of the Ming on Taiwan. And Taiwan was incorporated into the Qing dynasty. The Qing kind of just didn't really know how to deal with Taiwan because uh, there were revolts all the time there. There were also um, the different groups of people in Taiwan. Like you have, you have migrants, like, like I said before, you have migrants from like um, southern Fujian, but they came from um, two different major areas and those people killed each other all the time and then like they killed Hakka people all the time Hakka people killed them all the time and um like every few years there's like so then like the Qing officials were confused they're like okay are these people um like trying to revolt against the government are they just killing each other like how the hell do I so then for a while they just kind of banned people from um the Chinese mainland from going to Taiwan in the first place because they're like yeah it's too chaotic but you know people still find one way or another and um, by the time the japanese colonized taiwan taiwan was um majority um han chinese now um people i think some people want like to draw parallels between the the sinicization of taiwan and the settler colonialism of the united states with um, the genocide of native americans oh that's stupid don't do that and i don't want to um, say that um the relations between the han and um the aboriginal taiwanese were always you know the best and that there weren't um tensions and that hold on uh, can you also explain to people what sinicization means for people not familiar uh like chinification basically okay <laughs> so it, it, it's like um th- there was um cultural contact there was cultural assimilation there was also um i mean there were also there was also some fighting but um it wasn't like um you can't just compare it to um settler colonialism uh, hold on let's not give them ideas um <laughs> I mean, these ideas are already are, are already out there. How did Japan ended up getting control of Taiwan around 1895? Ah, uh, so there was the there was a little conflict known as the um, the First Sino-Japanese War. Mm-hmm. China was weak, so China lost, and they owed Japan war reparations. And China didn't have a lot of money, so Japan wanted Taiwan. Ah, so it was basically uh, like an annexation. Essentially, yeah, and um. In 1895, um, the Treaty of Shimonoseki was signed, and Taiwan was ceded to Japan. And there were people in Taiwan who were not okay with this. They did not want to become Japanese subjects. Mm-hmm. So they declared a new republic called the Republic of Taiwan. Literally, the um, democratic state of Taiwan, if you translate it from um, Taiwan means mm-hmm. And um, Sometimes separatists today like to draw parallels with that, but the thing is, those people who declared independence were declaring independence from Japan and they were pro-China. But um, China didn't really um, support these people because, um, you know, China was being carved up by a bunch of imperialist powers. And to them, another part of China that was um, occupied by Japan was the, um, the Liaodong Peninsula in Shandong province. Around the same time? They wanted to get the Liaodong Peninsula back from Japanese occupation. So then they just kind of left Taiwan alone. And the short-lived Taiwanese Republic was quickly defeated by the Japanese. Aha. So around that time, it seems like Japan was expanding their colonial ambitions because around, I think, 1905, they moved into an occupied Korea. So what was the Japanese government thinking? Like, what did they plan on doing with the society and the economy in Taiwan after they occupied it? I would say um, the the Japanese weren't exactly the friendliest colonizers, but they were a little bit less brutal to Taiwanese people than they were to Korean people because um, with Korea, they had already occupied the whole country. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they, their target was the Chinese mainland. And since the people in Taiwan were Chinese, they had to be a little bit more friendly to them. Aha. So can you talk about the Japanese assimilation policy in Taiwan and what that was and what happened there? So um, basically, for the longest time, there were kind of there there was debates. There were debates within Japan saying, "Okay, how do we want to deal with the mm-hmm. Taiwanese people? Do we just want to um, do we just want to be an extractive force? We kind of leave them alone and let the people like we just kind of um, work with the existing power structure and discover the people indirectly through there while we extract their resources and labor, or do we treat them as our own subjects?" And um, 
assimilation policy didn't really begin until the 1910s, but it wasn't very strong. I mean, if it were, I mean, after 50 years of colonization, the um the Chinese culture has been preserved quite well, despite um attempts to um kind of replace it with Japanese culture. But um, 1919. Japan began to um, view Taiwan as an extension of Japan rather than a mere colony. They deemed that um, the people on Taiwan were close enough to Japanese people that they could be um, become um, completely civilized. And the other thing is, in 1937, they started what was called the Kominka movement or the Huangminghua Yundong, or um, basically the movement of transformation into subjects of the emperor. Oh, okay. So that's very interesting. But like, what does that mean? What does it entail? And what is a subject of an emperor according to their philosophy at that time? Okay, so um, this kind of coincided with their war efforts because they really they wanted to actually at that point they wanted to truly really install Japanese identity into the Taiwanese people. So a Huangmin or the I guess in Chinese it's Huangmin and Japanese it's Komin or the imperial subject. It means that you're, you fully adopt Japanese customs, even in like your personal lives. You know, you speak Japanese, you wear Japanese clothing, you convert to Shintoism. And not everybody in Taiwan became one of those. Actually, in fact, only 2% of the population did. And as you can guess, they were from the landed aristocracy, the burgeoning um, like industrial capitalist class. And to become a formal imperial subject, or the Komin, you had to meet certain criteria, like speak Japanese at home. And people like um, the current leader, Tsai Ing-wen, her father was one of these people, right? <laughs> they uh, rose above the class, the status of a typical Taiwanese. And uh, once they meet all of the criteria, they attend this sort of, um, they go through this sort of ceremony where, you know, you they adopt the Japanese name and they renounce their Chinese ancestors. And then they adopt a new set of uh, fake Japanese ancestors. Interesting. Uh, okay, I've kind of heard about something like that with the uh, the old prime minister, but what exactly is that ceremony? And is it kind of like the equivalent of like a, some sort of cultural erasure appropriation? Yes, it is. It's it's erasure, but um, honestly, I don't think this has too many repercussions on Taiwanese society today. Sometimes just people will will, will explain things like, oh, people like Tsai Ing-wen are just like traitorous to um. China because their fathers were Huangmin. But I think um, wh- one thing that's important to note is the people who became these, um, who went through this sort of ceremonial process were people from the landed aristocracy. So I think we should be looking at primarily their class background. But uh, I think for today's um, episode, what's really important is um, are the events that took place um, following retrocession or the return of Taiwan to China and um, like 1945 to 1949, the stuff that happened there and also um the policies of Chiang Kai-shek and of his son, Jiang Jingguo. Exactly. That's what I wanted to focus on, but I just wanted to give them a brief background. So around this time, Japan is, well, for those of you who are not familiar with this, please listen to our episode with Tremor, where we go through World War II in China, so that you understand, like, around this time, Japan is occupying China and doing really colonial and imperial activities. So please listen to that. And we're going to assume that you've listened to that and you're kind of familiar with early World War II in China. Okay, so around 1937, the Japanese government was starting to recruit people in Taiwan for the war effort. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, basically, um, 1937, I mean, from this, you can still see they weren't truly trusted as actual Japanese. So 1937, they could go and they could enlist for um, support duties. And then in 1942, they allowed um, Taiwanese to volunteer to serve. So um, the, the former leader of Taiwan, Li Donghui, I believe he actually volunteered to serve. He wasn't drafted, he volunteered. And then 1944, um, Japan was starting to, um, things were looking very grim for Japan. So they just started drafting a bunch of people. So at this point, you have people from Taiwan who were drafted to fight in the Imperial Japanese Army who really did not have an alternative. Like my, um, my grandmother's older brother, my maternal grandmother's older brother was drafted, and then he he died in um, Hainan, um, Hainan province. Yeah. Does your grandmother ever talk about him? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, she 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 just ta- talks about how um he was drafted into the war and just never came back. Ah, sad. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then basically there was the Yalta Agreement, which we cover in the other podcast. And then they kind of decide that different areas are going to be under the protection of different governments. 
So Taiwan was ceded from Japan and quote unquote, returned to China right after the war. So can you explain what this means? Well, basically, um, just territories that were ceded from China were, were to be returned to China was basically all that is. But the thing is, um, China was in a state of chaos because a civil war was going on. So people like to think that the KMT didn't arrive to Taiwan until 1949. Mm -hmm. And 1949 was when, like, the entirety of the government was relocated to Taiwan. But starting from 1945, Taiwan was under KMT rule because it was returned to China. And the um, the, so the, um, the Republic of China at the time was the legitimate government of, of China. Now, um, they didn't really have the time and resources to really govern the people in Taiwan. They were more focused on their war efforts. So then they taxed the people in Taiwan heavily. And, uh, Hold on. So I just kind of want to get into a little bit more detail about this. So the civil war in China was between the PLA and the nationalist Kimti government. And I guess China was badly deindustrialized. They didn't have food. So there was tons of problems that caused the whole war. So how did the KMT government utilize the Taiwan area? Like what did Taiwan provide for the government, I guess? A lot of grain. Okay, so it was for, uh, and a lot of industry was destroyed by the war because of all the air raids in, in Taiwan or in mainland. Yeah, yeah, in, in Taiwan. Okay, so it was then ceded back to the Republic government, I guess, KMT government, and it was under the U.S. protection zone, right? Did the U.S. ever occupy that area? No, no, it didn't. It, it was completely just given to um, Chiang Kai-shek. Okay. And he's the leader of the KMT. And of course, everyone knows that Mao is the, was the leader of PLA. But then Taiwan gets stuck in the Cold War. And in 1949, U.S. tries to separate Taiwan. Like what happens there? Well, I think before we get into 1949, we should really we should really talk about just the era from 1945 to 1949, because what people don't seem to understand is um, a lot of the anti-China sentiments in Taiwan are an extension of the anti-KMT sentiment. I know this sounds weird to people who aren't familiar, but it's been exploited by the separatists to um, turn into this sort of anti-China anti sentiment. Because remember, at the time, the KMT was too busy focusing on issues on the mainland to really address the needs of the people on Taiwan. And then the people on Taiwan were made to feel like second-class citizens. And um, a lot of them were just thinking, you know, we were looking forward to returning to China. But now now that we're returned, it, it seems like we're still being treated like second-class citizens. So what happened as a result of that? Okay, so um, 1945, Taiwan was returned, right? And um, Chen Yi was sent by Chiang Kai-shek to serve as the chief executive governor of Taiwan province. And um, during this time, you know, a lot of um, civil servants who had served during the Japanese were just completely just replaced by oftentimes by underqualified um, people from the mainland because um, the KMT government just said, OK, these people were educated under Japanese rule. They can't be trusted. And there might be some truth to it, but that's not how you deal with internal contradictions among the people. Like if you want to win over the people, you can't just do that. I mean, Taiwan developed economically a little bit ahead of the mainland because um, it was a Japanese colony. So then there was also an air of classism because you had like these people coming from the mainland who um, were just poorer. Well, this was later on in 1949 when it was like the soldiers because the soldiers mostly came from like poor peasant families and stuff. So um, anyways, this sort of poor management, poor military discipline, government corruption, the bad economy and all that. Rebellion broke out in 1947. Basically, there was a woman who was selling untaxed cigarettes. And um, hold on. This is a really very interesting thing. This is the 228 incident, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so it, this is actually like one of the most important, what do you call it? Turning points? Yes, go ahead. So there was a woman who was selling cigarettes, and it was illegal cigarettes? They were just kind of untaxed. You know, like even in, even in the United States, if you like buy cigarettes from another state and you sell them, like let's say you buy cigarettes from like a cheap a, a cigarette with low taxes and you go to New York, some, something similar. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. Then what happened after? So um, they, the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau enforcement team in Taipei confiscated them from this woman. Her name was Lin Jiangmai. And then um, things escalated. And um, one of the people in the enforcement team just hit her with his rifle. Oh, my so, God. Um, 
So Taiwanese passersby, I mean, were, this was already during a time when they were being taxed heavily and like the newly arrived KMT government didn't really treat them well. You know, they were, they were already separated for 50 years. So then there was already some sort of like cultural separation. And plus, like I said before, most of the people in Taiwan are descendants of people from southern Minan, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, southern Fujian province. And um, these new arrivals from the mainland came from all over China. So then they spoke different um, dialects and all that stuff. So then there was also just sort of like a view that these people are outsiders. This, this sort of stuff happens, you know. So the same crowd of the people who saw, who got into the altercation with that um, tobacco monopoly bureau enforcement team went and protested to um, police and government buildings. And um, they also complained about inflation, unemployment, government corruption. So the soldiers shot into the crowd to disperse the protesters. So they were heated at that point. So then they started taking over government buildings and military bases on um, March 4th. And then they announced the incidents all over the radio. The protesters announced the incident? Yeah, they they took over the government buildings and they took over the radio. And um, they announced the incidents over the radio. And this just sparked province-wide protests because people were pretty fed up with the KMT and the way that they were um, just being treated like second-class citizens. So then um, what was really unfortunate was, um, you know, because you have... um, issues of unemployment and people who had just served in the arm, like uh, the Japanese army who were just kind of frustrated by the way things were. And they, oftentimes it's easy to just um, look for scapegoats for your problems, right? Did the camp team maybe see these people as collaborators or something like that, like an enemy? A little bit. They were just not to be trusted completely because they were educated under Japan and they, they were colonized by Japan for 50 years. Okay. So they didn't see them as collaborators per se. No, I mean, but there certainly were some collaborators, but they they were in the minority. Most of the people weren't collaborators, but um. Well, I know yeah. they weren't, but the KMT believed that is what I'm trying. I'm trying to uh, not 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 necessarily. They just like I said, they were just too cons- they were just too focused on dealing with the civil war in the mainland at this time to really just address the needs of the people in Taiwan. So, anyways, um, because the KMT government was made up of people from the mainland, these protesters eventually, um, because um. By this point, everyone in Taiwan knew about these incidents. So then they were just kind of like, there was just a lot of um, uprisings. What, what was really unfortunate was um, they would just see mainlanders they, who weren't necessarily in government. They could just be professors or just... Oh, and they were targeted? Yeah, they would just kill and beat them and rape them. Ooh. So it, it was... It, it, it's the, the separatists today like to paint the 228 incident as a simple matter of mainlanders killing Taiwanese people, but it's not exactly there there was an element of that but um because on the reinforcements arrived from mainland china on march 8th and then they started shooting just slowing down a lot of these protesters part of the uh protests were also 32 demands like demand for democracy the right to strike okay i just want to get the sequence right so then it escalated so the kmt responded by sending more people over to quell the unrest right yes 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 and then that happened in early march yep and then martial law began it it basically began what is martial law the your democratic rights that are outlined in the constitution are temporarily lifted okay so basically like they had lots of summary executions um basically shooting sprees like lots of weird things the martial law didn't end until 1986. Yes, it, it had, that's the biggest period of white terror in history, but um, we'll get to that. By the end of, by, by, um, the thing is, um, at that time, just basically, if, if you were suspected of trying to overthrow the KMT, you were, you were just, um, you were either thrown in jail or executed. And most of the people then, like during the Chiang Kai-shek era, who ended up getting executed were communists or communist sympathizers. So did they have any connection with the PLA or were they like an independent communist group? I mean, before 1949, they were in um, collaboration with the Communist Party of China, like on the mainland. So they were connected to it. There was some connection. Okay. Okay. So was this white terror like, because around that time, there was like a big uh, Cold War hysteria like around the world because essentially fascism was capitalism and it was very unpopular. um, And so they were really worried about there being like a global communist, whatever, something crazy. And so I don't know if it's strategy or reaction on part of the KMT was based on that anti-communist hysteria. It was. I mean, they, they had just lost the mainland. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, wait, wait. I thought that they didn't lose it until 1949. 
1949, yeah, but I mean, like, we're talking about martial law now. Martial law, like, goes way beyond um, 1947. <laughs> so, I mean, there was... So what's going on in the mainland is that I thought that KMT and PLA were still fighting over control of the mainland around... Yeah, them. yeah, they were, they were. Uh, okay. So then they had a big overreaction. How does that go? I mean, I go in, I go a little bit later because um, by the time um, Chiang Kai-shek's son, Jiang Jingguo, succeeded him, there really wasn't much of a communist movement in Taiwan. No, no, no. I mean, We're still talking about the 1947-228 incident. So you said around the beginning of March, uh, there was a bunch of demands that Taiwanese protesters handed over to the KMT government. Yeah. Uh, and what was that? those demands? There were like 32 of them. I don't know them all. No, I know. Can you just like list one or two? Democracy, the right to strike, but also um, the requirement for two thirds of the commissioners in Taiwan to be people who have resided in Taiwan for more than 10 years. So what does this mean? What's the significance? It means that um, people in the KMT who are governing Taiwan were disconnected with the people in Taiwan because they weren't even Taiwanese to begin with. They're, they just got imported from the mainland. Aha. Okay. So it was almost like a replication of a colonial capitalist relationship, or they were trying for that. It certainly felt like it to a lot of Taiwanese people at the time. Okay. Clearly, the KMT is being supported by the U.S. government, and they're really scared about the PLA. At this time, barely. The U.S. was starting to give up on Chiang Kai-shek. They didn't renew their, um, they didn't really renew their support for him until the Korean War started. Is it because of the 228 incident that the uh, nationalist government had so many military installations already there in Taiwan? Or was it before? Like, I'm trying to figure out what caused them to run away to Taiwan after they lost the war in 1949. It's not because of the 228 incident. It's just because um, Taiwan was the last territory left that hadn't been liberated. Okay. So basically, that was their last stand. So when uh, the PLA came, uh, October 1st, right? You have to remember, the PLA didn't have a navy. Oh. So, it, nor did it have an air force. So, okay, this makes sense. So, they basically, I mean, to be honest, the whole hammer and sickle thing is that it was peasants who had nothing but a hammer and sickle in a proverbial manner, not a literal manner. But <laughs> um, there was a big class component. So, can you talk about what happened and how the KMT ended up in uh, control of Taiwan? So, after the Huaihai campaign... KMT kind of knew it was screwed so that they started planning for the evacuation to Taiwan. They started shipping a lot of the national treasures from the mainland to Taiwan. So if you want to um, view um, China's national treasures, you go to the Palace Museum in Beijing for the architecture, but you go to the one in Taipei for the actual artifacts. And um, the gold reserves were also shipped over to Taiwan. Basically, um, at that time, it just went wherever the KMT government relocated. And... Along with the KMT government, I heard a lot of the Chinese collaborators also ran, right? Or at least that's what Timur said in his interview. What do you mean Chinese collaborators ran? So in the mainland, there were people who collaborated with Imperial Japan, and they Uh were very unpopular. So they apparently fled to Taiwan too around that time. The vast majority of the people who who went to Taiwan were soldiers. Ah, okay, got it. And those are the soldiers. I mean, they didn't really want to be in Taiwan. I mean, a lot of them were just kind of impressed into the army during the Civil War. So the KMT basically told them that it was it was a temporary retreat and that they would be home like very soon. Ah, but of course, the PLA didn't have a Navy or an Air Force like they couldn't actually go after Taiwan. So was there a treaty where the PLA ceded the territory formally or no? No, 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 no. I mean, um, a lot of times Western communists make fun of the fact that the um, so-called Republic of China constitution still contains the mainland and even outer Mongolia. And they're like, oh, well, Taiwan thinks it's a real China. No, this is a very gross oversimplification. It's a holdover from the Chinese civil war. And notice how Beijing never complains about it because Beijing recognizes this as a legacy of the civil war. I mean, if, um, what do you view the relationship between um, Taipei and Taipei as? I mean, Taipei and Beijing as? State to state? I'm sorry. Or or what? Me? I thought it was like I didn't really have a relationship. But I mean, when, I mean, nowadays you have Taiwanese businessmen like doing stuff in the mainland and you have people going through. You, you have to have like, I, you I don't have official diplomatic relations, but. You have a satellite stake or like a enclosure. No, 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 no. Not that. that Satellite state would involve that, like, 
one party is kind of like manipulating. The oh other. no, no, not manipulate. Okay, I don't know what the relationship is actually. I, I, what is it? I, I mean, the Taipei regime now. It's um, the incumbent party is a DPP, and they're moving, and and they want to make it more like um a state to state relationship. But before, during the the view was there was only one China, and that there was a disagreement on what this one China is. <laughs> But this is an internal affair of the Chinese people, and. Yeah, because there was a conspiracy at this point when um when Chiang Kai Shek retreated to Taiwan by the U.S. to um create a either a one China one Taiwan situation or a two China situation. So it's um the Taiwan independence was it, it was already a conspiracy by the U.S. imperialists by the 1950s. So there's a slight parallel that Chiang Kai Shek kind of wanted to create another Korean situation, but it didn't pan out. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, ideally, he wanted to、um, return triumphant to the mainland, but that wasn't going to happen. No, it sounds like he lobbied the U.S. government for some kind of help and war, and he also lobbied Singh Benri too, right? The head of the South Korea. Oh,、uh, they wanted to. I mean, he just Chiang Kai-shek was concerned about his own power,、mm-hmm. and he knew he was going to before the Korean War broke out. He knew he was being abandoned. So I mean, even b- before the Korean War broke out, he even sent people to the mainland to negotiate with them, Zhou Enlai. And then what happened? The Korean War broke out.、Oh, well, it makes sense because there's a land border, so obviously it makes sense as to why the PLA troops would go to help Korea when the U.S. invaded. So, can you talk about the relationship between Truman and、uh, Chiang? Oh, I mean, they, the U.S. just wanted to stabilize the situation because they, they wanted to. At that point, they were still trying to、um, drive a wedge between the Chinese and the Soviets. They thought that the new、um, PRC could be won over. Aha.、Uh-huh, okay, but then the U.S. invaded Korea, and it changed things, right? Oh, oh. So、um, at this point, they were just、um, the PLA was still、um, intending on、um, liberating Taiwan because it hadn't fully committed to、um, to send their troops to Korea. I guess a lot of people don't know is、um, the, there were still a lot of offshore islands、um, on the mainland side of the Taiwan Strait that were still under KMT control. So the PLA just starts liberating a lot of them. Okay, and this is around the July of nineteen fifty forty-nine. Yeah, 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 fifty. Okay, but then the U.S. responds by sending fighter jets to Taiwan, right? Yeah, but um, at this point, the KMT notices that um, the U.S. isn't really defending those offshore islands. They're just preventing um, the PLA from crossing the Taiwan Strait onto the Taiwan side. Okay. Which is why eventually, when um, the when the shelling of Kim, the Battle of Kimmen began in 1958, the PLA intentionally left the island unliberated. Ah, okay. So then, I guess they called off Chen Yi's forces. So around this time, the U.S. and I guess if you want to call them that, U.N. started bombing Korea, right? Yes. the The, the, the Korean War broke out in、um, June twenty fifth, and the U.S. intervened like shortly after. Yeah, MacArthur goes to.、Um, Launches this counterattack in Incheon in September of that year, I believe. Okay. By the way, check out our YouTube. We'll put a link where Jan Chu talks about the Korean War in our earlier interview. So, can you just walk us through the next few years in the life of Taiwan, like how they're dealt with the Korean War, and how like the Eisenhower administration versus the Truman、um, administration dealt with this? Well, there there wasn't really much of a much of a difference between them,、um, like. And maintaining the relationships with the KMT government. I mean, a- after the Korean War, things just more or less stabilized. Okay. Because um the before the Korean War, there was um they wanted to abandon Chiang Kai Shek, but after the Korean War had started, they wanted to prevent um communist expansion. So then they um sent the um the Seventh Fleet to the Taiwan Strait to um prevent um the PLA from reaching Taiwan, and then they renewed their kind of support for Chiang Kai Shek, but not without. Issue. I mean, they, they the U.S. didn't really like Chiang Kai Shek because he had too many ideas of his own. They wanted to replace him with somebody who was a little bit more、um, who was a little bit more obedient, like a Juan Guaido. <laughs> I mean, they, their their guy was Sun Liren for a while, but then Chiang Kai Shek kind of figured out the conspiracy and then just killed him. Yeah. No, no, he didn't. He didn't kill him, but、um, he just kind of exiled him. So、um, I, I want to just give the definitions because、um, a lot of times. 
in Western media, they'll um they'll say the people who arrived in Taiwan like around the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War as like the mainlanders, and then um, everyone else they'll call native Taiwanese. But then that like gets confusing because there's like because people start thinking, oh, so those people are just they're not like ethnically Chinese at all. They're they're not like Han. They're just like Aboriginal Taiwanese, which is not the case. So. Um, which is why I prefer to just use the Chinese term "本省人," which means the people of this province, which means people who were whose families were already in Taiwan by the time um, Taiwan was returned to China in 1945. And "外省人" are like the new arrivals from the mainland around the time of the um, and their descendants from around the time of the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War. SOS Cuba. All new subscriptions this week will be used to audition a Juan Guaido figure to install in Cuba. So head over to historically.substack.com and subscribe to our newsletter and listen to previous episodes of our podcast. That's historically.substack.com. And be sure to head over to Spotify and check out Zhang Yu's music. Okay, so I guess. The economy in Taiwan was very different from mainland. So, can you talk a little bit about how each class or different sectors of society worked, and whether, like, and who controlled what? I mean, the aristocracy then was basically the um, the landlord class, and those were represented by the KMT, right? The KMT made inroads with them. Okay. I think、uh, I think the TLDR is okay. Taiwan was the the stuff you mentioned about Japan was. Pretty good, but basically KMT came. They were corrupt. They didn't win over the Taiwanese people, and then、um, the Korean, the Chiang Kai-shek was screwed. But then the Korean War happened, which kind of、um, gave him like a second hit of life support. Okay. And then I want to get into like、um, for this, I, I think we should get into the relations between the KMT and the people on Taiwan. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to get into. So I wanted to talk about the the working conditions and how they were suppressed and they had slavery, like. I was gonna get to that part. <laughs> I was leading you to that part, and not slavery per se, but very bad wages, like very abused workers, overworked, underpaid. Right? There was that, and then there was also like before the agricultural reforms, it, it kind of it was kind of futile in a way. So, was Taiwan a largely rural economy, or was it a largely an urban economy? It was in transition. Okay, so it was a little bit more industrialized than mainland. You did mention that. So. How was the KMT's relationship with the people who were already there, and what's the word so that I don't mispronounce it? Um, the people who were already there were um Bensungin. Bensungin. Okay. What was the KMT's relationship? And KMT called themselves Waisungin, right? Waisungin. Oh, it wasn't who called themselves what. It's just on what was Waisungin. Literally means people extra, extra provincial people. Okay, got it. So、uh, do talk about the relationship between that and how the KMT's policy worked. We talked about the two two eight incident, right? And a lot of it was like the misunderstandings between the two. And、um, because the new government was composed of white Sengren, and because of the two two eight incident, there was just a lot of distrust between Ben Sengren and white Sengren. Like Ben Sengren viewed them、um, like most white white Sengren as a KMT adjacent or just KMT. And then those people, I mean, because you know we had to talk about the classes. We have like the political elite, like Chiang Kai Shek and his like his crew.、Mm-hmm. But then the vast majority of the Waisengren in Taiwan were like military, and they were they, they、ah. were like from poor backgrounds. But because of the fact that they came from the main, they were recent arrivals from the mainland. Like they were oftentimes just grouped together with the political elite as oh they're the outsiders.、Uh-huh. So then they faced discrimination, and then because of that, the Kanji's just like well who's gonna who's gonna protect you guys? The Taiwanese people, the Benshengren don't like you guys, but we're here for you. And so the Kanji aligned with the soldier class, right? No, the KMT aligned with、um, the bourgeoisie of both groups. Ah, but, got it. But they realized that the military people and like those Weishengren were like a important part of support. But the KMT couldn't just survive off of their support. I mean, they were a, they were still a minority in Taiwan's population. Taiwan was still majority Weishengren. But they got the U.S. to like give them grants and licenses and investment. Yeah, yeah, there, there was that. There was, there was that too. I mean, up until the 1990s, the um, the so-called National Assembly and the so-called Parliament were dominated by Weishengren or people whose families came from the mainland. And um, because of martial law, um, the so-called president wasn't elected. I mean, elections were suspended. I mean, before democratic reforms. I mean, nowadays it's elected directly by the people. But back then, in theory. The people would elect the national assembly, which would elect the president. Okay, martial law lasted for nearly forty years, from nineteen forty-seven to nineteen eighty-six. So, 
Um, I just wanted people to understand, like, because people yeah. think that martial law is temporary, but this one lasted a long time. Yeah. So because of that, the excuse was, well, the country is in a state of um, disunity. We, 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 we don't have um, the mainland yet, and our constitution encompasses both Taiwan and the mainland. So until there's reunification, we can't just have elections in one tiny part of China. Mm. So we're just going to, people in the National Assembly are just going to be appointed. Mm. And then all of most of these people were white Sengren, and then like the and then Chiang Kai Shek kept on getting reelected by this National Assembly. So then you can you can kind of understand why people and a lot of like the Ben Sengren in Taiwan just kind of felt that this was like a almost colonial government. It was like a outside force that just came in and took over. It behaved a lot like one. There definitely is. I want to explain this because this is why like a lot of the Taiwan separatists nowadays will describe China as a colonial power because in their minds okay kmt came from the mainland people the ccp the cpc today they're mainlanders so it's like this sort of identity reductionism going on no well i mean it makes sense from their point of view though <laughs> yeah 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 it's um same country i guess but then they kind of take u.s imperialism out of the picture that's mm. like the missing piece of the puzzle and like i said the kmt didn't necessarily trust um the bensung civil servants because um, due to having been educated by Japan's colonial subjects. So then um, there were also affirmative action and um, civil servant examinations. And when we think affirmative action, we think of, oh, it helps people that are underprivileged. Over here, affirmative action kind of just helped Wai Sheng Ren. So in 1956, the uh, acceptance rate for Ben Sheng Ren was 0.061%. And in 1960, in the army, only 13.8% of lieutenants, 9.5% of field officers, and 1.3% of general officers in the military were born in Taiwan. And um, when we say born in Taiwan over here, I'm talking about Taiwan-born Wai Shengren, as well as Taiwan-born Ben Shengren. But if they weren't born in Taiwan, they're definitely Wai Shengren. So clearly, in this time, there was this sort of um, era of Wai Sheng superiority in Taiwan. And the official slogan of this era was um, reclaiming the mainland. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek knew it wasn't a possibility, especially after the mainland had developed nukes. But um, in the eyes of Ben Shengren, they felt that they were just cannon fodder to Chiang Kai-shek because um, they felt that the KMT didn't really see them as like truly one of their own. And then they felt that if reclaiming the mainland were successful, that it, it wouldn't really benefit the Ben Shengren. So did they uh, form... A rebellion, like an independence movement? Like, what happened? How did they respond to it? Well, um, during Chiang Kai-shek era, most of the opposition was, were communists, but then they got, they got crushed. So then by then, um, as Taiwan became more um, industrialized, there was a growing middle class in Taiwan. And um, that middle class was kind of more liberal-minded. It was against the KMT. But it wasn't necessarily an independence or separatist movement. It was like... They were for like bourgeois democratization, and this kind of rose and oh, so more democratization, but not necessarily a change of control. Well, it was an opposition movement because um back then the KMT was the only party that was allowed, but they did allow people to um run for like local government and also like run for things like parliament as independents. They just couldn't form another party, but then it kind of became understood that there was an opposition movement that was made up of people from outside of the party that kind of birth the DPP. This was this a lot of the struggle happened after Chiang Kai-shek had died and was replaced by his son um, Jiang Jingguo. When did Chiang Kai-shek die? 1975, but by 1972 his son was mostly kind of running things in the background. Okay. So, it was a very um I guess for lack of a better word, very regimented, I don't know what to call it, but they weren't allowed to form unions for a while, like for maybe 10 years. Like it was not very good for workers, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but by the time his son came into power and like really developed the economy, everybody did benefit. I mean, it was still capitalism, but like everyone rose. Okay, and uh, what did he do that was different then? Well, um, I think um, in 1970 there was an assassination attempt on Zhang Jingguo, um, Chiang Kai-shek's son, when he visited New York. Mm. And in his diary, he asked um, the assassination attempt was done by like these separatists who were anti-KMT. Mm-hmm. So he asked in his diary. Why would Taiwanese people want to kill me? Mm -hmm. But then um, you can start seeing that when he came into power, 
he started kind of inviting more Ben Sengren into higher levels of government because he wanted, he knew that returning to the mainland was not a possibility. Mm-hmm. He was still anti-communist. He wanted Chinese reunification, but he was also anti-communist. So that at this point, it was like, oh, okay, we're just going to um, wait and see how things go. And um, if the government on the mainland collapses, then we'll figure out how to reunify. <laughs> it was kind, of, was kind of like the unspoken attitude. But he was like, but to stabilize our rule in Taiwan, we have to do some reforms. We have to um, get rid of this image of the KMT being like this outside force and let Taiwanese people like Ben Sengren become more involved in politics, especially at higher levels of government. And we really have to develop the economy. So um, he carried out the um, the 10 major construction projects. It was like infrastructure and like um, heavy industry and stuff like that. It was heavily guided by the government. And um, since like this is around the time when Japan's economy was evolving so then um they they japan started doing a lot of outsourcing so around this time taiwan was also doing a lot of more um, low-level manufacturing for um japanese and american companies consumer goods yeah basically so then they're already having an extra surplus of like hard currency then so they can actually import more stuff and leave people a little bit more comfortable so that that was his policy yeah but then the final blow to um the kmt's um military dictatorship was in 1979 when the U.S. abandoned Taipei in favor of Beijing. What happened there? Well, I mean, 1971, Beijing replaced Taipei as the um, representative of China in the U.N. 1972, Nixon visits um, China and they signed the Shanghai Communique. And um, I think that... But but China's population is like humongous compared. I just wanted people to understand how weird it was to have Taiwan as the official representative because China was the most populated country at that well, time. Well, I think um, I think one way to frame this though is um yeah, yeah that's 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 totally correct. So people say that Taiwan isn't in the UN, but okay, de facto it isn't, but um Taiwan was never in the UN as Taiwan. No, it was the Republic of China. Yes, yes, yes. And Taiwan, according to the Republic of China Constitution, Taiwan is a province of the Republic of China. Basically, um, what 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 the Shanghai Communique said was, um, there was only one China. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it doesn't say which China, but it just says there's only one China. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the KMT was like, okay, whatever. The second part was that Taiwan is part of this China. And then, okay, the KMT doesn't disagree with this. I mean, the KMT wasn't involved in the Shanghai Communique, but I mean, it was paying close attention. So saying that Taiwan is a part of this China was kind of like the U.S. kind of, it it was a concession by the U.S. saying, okay, we're not going to try to continue our conspiracy of creating a two China or one China, one Taiwan situation. Okay. At least that, that was, at least that was a promise. I mean, they, they still kind of they still kind of did. And then the final thing was um the the cross strait situation is to be settled peacefully. And I think that was a concession by the Communist Party of China. Oh, what was the concession? That that um the cross strait situation would be settled peacefully. Ah, from the Strait of Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened next? So, I mean, um, a lot of the legitimacy of the, uh, of the so-called Republic of China regime on Taiwan rested from U.S. support. Mm-hmm. And now that the U.S. cut diplomatic ties, it's, it's, it's kind of more like, okay, so as like opposition was growing within the island, it was becoming isolated on the international arena is where I'm trying to get at. Ah, okay. Because of different global strategic alliances. Yes, yes, yes. And then um, the petty bourgeois, like, opposition movement and over the course of the 70s began calling for um, the redistribution of political power. But I want to make note, and I've said this on Carl's podcast, that most of their demands were in the political arena and not economic arena. And I think this is a very important sign of the fact that this isn't a leftist movement. It's like a petty bourgeois liberal centrist movement. movement, I guess. Yes. I mean, look at look at the protests in Hong Kong, for example. Mm-hmm. None of their demands were economic. They were all political. So does the KMT government concede? Not initially. Eventually, yes. So what was their reaction? How did, like, what were they thinking initially? So, I mean, um, here's the thing about the KMT. They were very good and efficient at um, crushing communists. Uh-huh. But they don't really have much experience in dealing with petty bourgeois liberal opposition. Because <laughs> this was kind of like a class that didn't really exist in great numbers Ah, it was created after the economic jump. 
exactly exactly so it's like how do we deal with these people and like as changes in the economic base happen you know like the class makeup of a society changes then the superstructure needs to make certain adjustments i mean the the past military dictatorship was kind of i want i wouldn't say it's good but it's okay and like leading like a sort of mostly worker and like peasant society mm-hmm. capitalist society but when you have like a bigger middle class they start having more liberal demands mm-hmm. So then um, this was during a time when, okay, you had um, opposition um, politicians like getting involved in government. There was like the, um, the Dangwai movement. Dangwai means I'm outside of the party. So that was like the pre- predecessor to the DPP. Because like I said, um, uh, opposition parties weren't allowed to be set up yet. And there was a lot of discourse, a lot of magazines being published. They had like these a bunch of liberal magazines and a lot of them had, um, some of them had some sort of separatist ideas, but their, their main goal was still the democratization. What did they want for democratization? Multi-party elections, a direct election of leaders, and um, so basically they want to be like the U.S. So how did the situation resolve itself between the KMT and the opposition and the DPP? Uh, well, there was a Formosa Magazine incident. Talk to us about it. It was um, so Formosa Magazine was one of the um the liberal magazines, like the anti-KMT magazines, right? And they held a a commemoration event on International Human Rights Day, and then there was a clash between just the protesters and the police, and it was the greatest since the two two eight incident. And around this time, there were a lot of um, magazines just calling just where people like petty bourgeois intellectuals would write about democracy and like criticize the KMT. And then there was a cat and mouse game because um, the KMT would ban them. Like they would revoke their publication licenses and then they would, they would reemerge under new names, but like kind of similar names are similar enough that, you know, okay, this it's the same, it's the same company. Ah, So the publications would get cracked down upon. And then once they get cracked down upon, they reemerge with the new shell looking company, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, um, it's like, for example, if international publications were shut down, they were, and then they reemerge as like um, workers' world publications or something. You, you know, like yeah. it's similar enough that people would know um, things. So then, um, organizers of the magazine were arrested and sentenced. What did they get? Oh, a lot of prison terms. Mm-hmm. And then all of them, except for one of them, became um, DPP chairman at some point. This concludes part one of our interview with Chang Yu. Please check out our next episode for part two. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.